0: So I want to welcome you to week eight now of our series from the book of James called How Faith Works. Uh, James is um, one of, if not the most practical authors that you're going to find in the entire Word of God, and so this book is not so much written to give us a lot of new information or doctrine or anything like that as much as that is written to tell us how our lives will look if the faith we claim in Jesus is real. And so, instead of burning a lot of calories explaining the gospel, what James does is he assumes that you know the gospel, and he tells you what it looks like as the gospel works itself out in your and my life. And this passage is a, is just another um, great example of that. So we're going to be finishing up chapter four this morning in verses 13 through 17. I'll go ahead and read that to us. It says, "Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit." You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Excuse me. Still becoming a man, apparently. Uh, Verse 15. It's not that funny. Not that funny. (laughs) Verse 15. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it's a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. This is God's Word. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, we were finishing up chapter 3, and in the final verses of chapter 3, James introduces the topic of wisdom, and he compares and he contrasts God's wisdom with earthly wisdom, also known as foolishness. And if you have been following along since that teaching, uh, what you may have noticed is that James has not really changed the subject since then as much as he has elaborated on that subject. And what James is doing in this passage is warning you and I about a a kind of foolishness that is so pervasive we don't even notice it any more than a fish notices the water that they've navigated their whole life in. And so what I want to do is look at this passage from kind of three different vantage points. We're going to look at the problem that James highlights. We're going to look at why it's a problem. And then we're going to look at the solution to it. So, so first, I think the most pressing question is what exactly is James condemning here? Because this is one of those passages in Scripture that it's really easy to misinterpret what he's actually saying is bad and then arrive at a bunch of weird conclusions. So, but it's, the problem is, is, is verse 13. It says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Now on the surface, what it looks like is James is straightforwardly condemning anybody who makes any kind of plan for their life. Because what verse 13 is, at its essence, it's a, basically it's a business plan and it has all of kind of the, the landmarks of a good plan. You know, it has, first off, a start date. That's today or tomorrow. It's got a location. It says we'll travel to such and such a city. A time frame. We're going to spend a year there. And an end goal, which is to do business and make profit. And so if you were moving through James and you didn't really pause on this particular passage to really take the time to make sure you understand what he's saying and what he's not saying, it would be easy to come away With this idea that what the Bible is doing is forbidding anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus that makes any kind of plan and develops any kind of strategy for how they want their life to go. We know, however, that that's not what James is saying, and I'll give you two reasons why we know that. First off, uh, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which James uh, quotes both indirectly and directly in the letter of James, If you spend any time in Proverbs, you know that Proverbs over and over reminds us how foolish it is to not have a plan and how wise it is to have one. But even more importantly than that um, is the words of Jesus Christ himself. Because in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells two kind of miniature parables That both are all about the wisdom of planning. He talks first and foremost about how foolish it would be to go out and build a tower without creating a budget beforehand because what will happen is you won't be able to finish and you'll make a fool of yourself in front of the community. And then secondly, building off of that, Jesus talks about how foolish it would be for a general to go to war without first figuring out if they actually have the assets, the resources to win that war. And so Jesus himself talked about the wisdom of planning. What we know about James is that he's definitely not contradicting Proverbs, and he is certainly not contradicting Jesus Christ himself. So again, the question is, uh, what exactly is James speaking against? And here's the answer. It's not the act of planning per se. It's the specific attitude of the heart behind this planning. That's why if you bounce down to verse 16, he says this. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So James's issue here is that the plan that he's describing in verse 13 is a boast. So what I want to do is just take a few minutes, because we don't really use that term often, and we don't think in these terms. Let's just take a, a few moments here and talk about what a boast is. I don't know if, if you've ever thought like this, but for instance, I have uh, a number of times I've seen the movie Gladiator. Gladiator, I actually j- just found out, is based on a true story. I'm sure very loosely based on a true story, but it's based on a time period that actually is not very far removed from the life of James himself. It takes place around 180 AD when Rome had conquered a few Germanic tribes and momentarily brought peace to the Roman Empire. And when I watch movies like that, and there's lots of movies like this, but when I watch movies specifically like Gladiator, one of the... One of the most pressing questions I have is, because this is so strange for modern people, I think, is how on earth did you motivate that many people to run into battle like that, knowing that a gruesome death almost surely was waiting for them? I mean, you, you think about the, the way that war was waged back then, and what you had is a wall of soldiers with you know maybe swords, maybe shields, maybe not even that, running headlong into an opposing wall of soldiers, knowing that you're probably gonna die in a really horrifying way. The, the question that I have when I, when I zoom out from that is how on earth did you motivate people to do that? And actually, you zoom out from, from human history, most wars that have been fought have been fought that way. So how did they do that? How did you get people excited about that? And the answer is is this thing called a boast. You actually see it in the Bible, but you see it in lots of ancient accounts, that the way that, that you riled people up was the leader of one of the, you know, units or armies or whatever you want to call it would make a boast about something, whether it was, you know, the, the, the chariots and the horses that you had that your enemy didn't have or, you know, the strength of your champion or the size of your army or the nobility of your cause or just the overall superiority of your people. You boasted about that, and that was meant to rile up the troops and get them ready to face what was ahead of them. Now, pause here. As modern people, I'm sure that, that most people would hear that and think, hey, that's fascinating, but I don't actually deal with the urge to sack a city after listening to an inspiring speech by Maximus Decimus Meridius. So what does this have to do with us living in the modern day? And what the Bible says when you, when you look at how it speaks about boasting What it says, interestingly enough, is that boasting is not just a ritual of warfare, it's a ritual of the human heart, and every single one of us uh, has really no option except to do it. That's why you read in, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, a really famous passage. It says, this is what the Lord says, the wise man must not boast in his wisdom, the strong man must not boast in his strength, the wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So here's the point. According to the Bible, uh, a boast is anything that you and I look to to give us the confidence and the strength to go out and face life. And what Jeremiah is saying here, and really this is what the Bible's telling us in different ways from cover to cover, is that ever since the moment we ran out on God in Genesis chapter three, every single human heart has this nagging affinity to look to something other than God and boast in something other than God. Meaning, whether you, you consider yourself religious, secular, whatever, all of us look at something and we tell ourselves, as long as I have that, or if I can just get that, then I'll be okay. Then I'll know I'm worthwhile. Then I, then I can face, you know, the ups and downs of life. Then I can deal with my own mortality. Then I can whatever. And what we've done in that moment, even if we would never phrase it this way, is we have rooted the deepest source of our confidence in something other than God, which always inevitably leads to disaster. So having understood all that, uh, what James is talking about here. And specifically in verse thirteen, he's talking about a particular form of boasting. What he's talking about is a posture of the heart. There's a a million different ways we could describe this, but I think you'll get what what I'm going for here. He's talking about a posture of the heart that looks to your planning, and your due diligence, and your research, and your analysis, and just your, your 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 strategy and your general ability, and then goes out in life and says, "Okay, I've done my homework." I've, I've, I've you know, measured the risk-to-reward ratio, and now I'm in control of my future, and I'm going to determine what the course of my life will be. Right? If, if you wanted to, to, to kind of boil that mindset down and name it something, which I think is helpful, you could call this the life control illusion, which is the illusion that if you just plan the work and then you work the plan, uh, then you can become, I'll quote the poem Invictus here, the master of your fate and the captain of your soul." That's what he's talking about. Now, we could move on, and we will in just a moment here, but before doing so, I just want to highlight something, and hopefully this this builds somebody's faith. It's passages like this specifically that give me so much confidence that the the Bible actually is the inspired Word of God. And, And here's why I say that. If the Bible really, just think about it, if the Bible really was nothing more than the collected thoughts and opinions and ideas of a couple of men who lived several thousand years ago, then then what you would expect to find and what you absolutely would find is that the further we get removed chronologically and culturally from the Bible the more com- really hilariously irrelevant we would find the Bible to be. Meaning it would just talk about y- y- the most out- off-the-wall ideas and, and, and things that are, it would address topics that are completely irrelevant and have absolutely no value to us living as far culturally removed as we are from it. Just, just to give you an example of this, I did not share this with the 9 a.m., so exclusive content here, get ready. I don't know if, you, if this came across your feed, whatever your particular brand of social media is, but a couple of months ago, Uh, This, for whatever reason, went viral. And I'll I'll tell you, I don't know what book this is from. I don't know what this book was about. But apparently, there was some book that had a section in it that was offering men, (laughs) here we go, uh, some romantic advice about how to garner the attention of the ladies. This is what the book said. And I'm quoting it here. It said, and I quote, you may fascinate a woman. We all on the edge of our seats? You may fascinate a woman by handing her a piece of cheese. Now, I just got to stop here. I'm sorry. I don't claim to be a ladies' man, but I will tell you this. I've done a number of weddings, and I have yet to hear a bride look her husband in the eye and say, when you handed me that block of Parmesan... The door to my heart was unlocked, and I knew it was a mess. Like it just doesn't. My point is, you should expect to see all kinds of off the wall. By the way, that book was written in 1971. Look, barely 50 years ago, and that's how ridiculous it sounds. My point is, we should expect to find and we would find all kinds of stuff like that in the Bible if it was just the thoughts and the ideas of men who were a product of their culture and it had no divine element to it. And yet, you understand the mindset that James is addressing here, and you realize there's nothing more relevant to us today than what he's talking about. Because here we are 2,000 years removed from these words, and we are a culture that is squarely built on the mindset that James is talking about here, are we not? I mean, from, the, from elementary school on, the books that we read, the songs that we sing, the people we admire, the, the, the everything, everything, we are bombarded with this diet that consists of this idea that all you need to do in life is get this vision of what you want your life to be and then once you have that, the only person stopping you from making it happen is you. And what James is saying here in no uncertain terms is that if you actually believe that, you are the biblical definition of a fool. And that's not an insult, believe it or not. When we use the term fool in English, that has, you know, a pejorative sense to it. You're usually, what you really mean is, hey, you're stupid. But that's not really what the Bible's saying here. When the Bible talks about foolishness, foolishness is simply a state of being so out of touch with reality That you make destructive choices that will cause you and the people closest to you a great deal of harm. That's what foolishness is. And so the point of this passage is that if you move through life believing that you are in control and you can go out and acquire the life that you want for yourself by your thinking and your planning and your strategizing and your discipline and your stick-to-itiveness and your all of that, James says you are going to make all kinds of destructive choices that are going to lead you and the people around you to ruin. That's the problem. That's what he's warning us about. It's a brand of earthly wisdom, a.k.a. foolishness, that so it, it comes as natural to us as turning oxygen into carbon dioxide. So from here, let's pivot and ask the question. Go a little bit deeper here. Why is this such a problem? The life control illusion, why is it such a big deal? And the answer to that is found in verses 14 and 15. It says... You don't even know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be, for you are like smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, what James is saying in in, in those verses is he's given us three reasons, and this will form the rest of our, our, our time together three reasons why this mindset that we've called the life control illusion is so foolish. And I'll give them to you on the front end. And they're, they're, uh, you know, at classic James, they're very difficult to hear. They're extraordinarily humbling. But the three reasons why James says the life control illusion is an illusion and that to live according to that and build your life on that will lead you to ruin is, according to these verses, three reasons. Number one, because you and I are more ignorant than we realize. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Number two, we are more dependent than we realize. Number three, we are more frail than we realize. So let's go through them. In the first half of verse 14, we see the first reason. James says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. We'll we'll just, we'll just pause there. This is the first reason that it's so foolish to to approach life with this idea that you can just take it by the horns and decide what you want your future to be. It's that you've, when you live that way, James says, you have forgotten that you are far more ignorant than you realize. And what you've done is you have assumed at least two things. You've assumed, first off, that you can know what tomorrow holds. And number two, and, and maybe even more destructively, you have assumed that you know how your life is supposed to go. And neither of those are true. Now, when I say that, I was trying to. Th- I always try to think how would I hear these ideas, and and here's what I would. Here's what I would think. Almost nobody would hear what I just said and and and, and admit that they believe that. You know, I think most people would say, yeah, I I, th- I agree that some people have that kind of arrogance, but I don't think I know what tomorrow holds, and I don't think I know how my life is supposed to go. The problem is, we can we can know cognitively that that's ridiculous, but we live according to it anyway. We, even if we know better, we still build our life on that foundation, largely living in self-deception. And one of the surefire ways that kind of raises the question: Well, how can I know if I quietly do believe what James is telling me? I can't. I should not believe. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the one of the absolute surefire symptoms that will appear in your and my life that is a, that is itself evidence that we think we know more than we do. One of, the, one, of the, one of the surefire symptoms that will appear in your and my life, here it is, is worry. And if that doesn't nail us all to the wall, I don't know what does. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, well, how, how's that? how, how does that work? How could having the arrogance to think that I know what the future holds lead to worry? And if, if, if that's where your mind goes, let me just ask you to think about this for a second. Think about what worry actually is. All worry at the end of the day really just boils down to this. It, it, it's basically saying, I know how my life is supposed to go. I know how it's supposed to go, and I'm worried it's not going to work out like I know it's supposed to. All worry is based on this assumption that we know. And I guarantee if we turn this into a group counseling session and everybody had the chance to kind of lay down on a couch and, and, and you know, we talked about things, I, I can guarantee, I can guarantee that if we got... If, if we all got out there, what we are worried about right now, or what we tend to worry most about in our lives, and we got underneath that and underneath that and all the way to the bottom of that, what we would find is every single one of us has this ideal, picturesque version of the life that we know we are supposed to have. We know we have to have in order for our life to be worth living. And What James is saying here is, no, you don't. You don't know. You don't even know how your life is supposed to go. When I was thinking through this idea, one of the first things that came to my mind I don't know if you've ever heard this before I think there's a lot of different versions of this parable. I just came across it a few months ago. The version that I heard it, it was called the, "The Parable of the Chinese Farmer." Maybe you've heard this before but it goes like this: that once there was a, a Chinese farmer, he was an old man, he had a young son and a horse, and that was about all he had to his name. And so one day his horse ran away, and the people from the village came to him and they said, "We're so sorry, that's so terrible." And the old man looked at him and he simply said, well, we'll see. And so a couple of weeks go by and the horse that ran away returned, but it, it brought with it two beautiful wild stallions, amazing stroke of fortune. So now he has the horse that he lost initially in, in these two beautiful wild stallions. And so all those same people from the village come to him and they say, man, this is fantastic. We're so happy for you. And again, he looks at the villagers and he says, well, we'll see. A couple of weeks go by and the old man's son is out in the field playing with those horses and he's thrown from one of those horses and he's injured and permanently lamed as a result of his injury. And so again, the people from the village come to him and they say, man, we're, we're, we're so sorry, that's so terrible what happened to you. And again, the old man looked at him and he simply said, well, we'll see. And sure enough, a couple of weeks go by and conscriptors from the army approached the village. They said, The emperor has declared war and we need every able bodied young man to go and fight, which in that day and age basically meant when you said goodbye to your son, you were saying goodbye for the last time. But because the old man's young son had been injured, he was exempt from service. And so again, the villagers came to him and said, Man, that's incredible, what good fortune. And for the last time in the story, he simply says, Well, we'll see. And the point of that story is to put the hearer onto this idea that at any given moment in our life, we have so little knowledge about what's going on in our life and how the events will play out that we don't even have enough information to know how what we're going through will ultimately be used either in a beneficial or detrimental way. And that idea is actually a deeply biblical idea. And I think for me, it's most clearly put on display in the story of Joseph that you're probably familiar with. In the the Old Testament, the story of Joseph begins, he's betrayed by his brothers, he's stripped of this robe that his father gave him, which was the insignia of how much his father loved him, he's thrown in this pit and he's left for dead. And he he would have died there, he could have died there, except that he he was basically captured by slave traders who sold him into slavery in the nation of Egypt. And while he's there, he's trying to walk with integrity and make the most of of the lot that he's been handed in life. But if you know the story, he's falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. And so now, not only is he a slave in a foreign country, but he's in jail in that country. And so when he's in jail, it's discovered that he has the ability to interpret dreams, and he does so for somebody who's just about ready to get released and Joseph tells him before he walks out of the cell, "Hey, don't forget about me. I shouldn't be in here. Get me out of here when you're on the other side." And the guy says, "Absolutely, I'll get you out of here when I'm on the other side." And for like the 1000th time in Joseph's life, he's he's forgotten about. He's abandoned, he's betrayed, he's left for dead. And it just looks like his, his life is this irredeemable tragedy one after the other. But then of course we have the omniscient you know reader's perspective. And so we can see that everything that God allowed Joseph to walk through up to that point in his life was was all of it was necessary in order to get Joseph into a leadership position. In Egypt's government so that through his wisdom and his administrative ability, he could help that nation navigate through this severe famine that struck that region of the world for seven years. And because of Joseph's leadership, countless families were saved, including the lives of his own biological family members. And all the way at the end of Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50, one of the most famous and hopeful verses in the word of God, Joseph is looking at his brothers who are terrified that he's going to use his power to get them back. And Joseph looks at them and he says, you meant this for evil. Everything you did for me, you did with evil intent. But he follows that by saying, but God meant it for good. Now, I was thinking about that specific moment in Joseph's life in light of what James is saying here. And here's what I'm certain of. When, James, pardon me, when Joseph was looking at his brothers in that moment, I have to believe, because this is exactly what I'd be doing. I think it's what you'd be doing as well that Joseph was not just looking at his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. He was looking back over the course of his entire life. And maybe that, that was the first time in his life that the moment finally became clear to him. But when he told his brothers God meant all of this for good, it's as though he was saying, listen, I wouldn't have chosen to go through anything that God walked me through. If you had told me as a young man walking around with my father's coat of many colors that this was the ride that God had put me on, I would have have kicked and screamed to get off of it before the ride started. And there were so many times in my life when I could not see how God could possibly use what he was allowing me to experience for any good whatsoever. But in that moment in Genesis 50, it was as though Joseph was finally seeing for the first time in his life with, with, with an almost supernatural clarity, he's saying, now I can see that absolutely everything that happened to me needed to happen to me exactly the way that it happened to me. It was all a part of this path. Now, what, what James is trying to get us to do here is to see our life now the way that Joseph could only see his life at the end. And although this is a hard word, here's what James would say. To everyone who, I'll just say, like me, To everyone listening to this who, like me, has a tendency to get wrapped around the axle with worry, what James would say to us is that underneath all of that fear and all of that doubt and all of those sleepless nights and those pits in the stomach and that consternation and that anxiety, underneath all of that is this belief that the human heart (laughs) holds on to with a white-knuckle grip that we know how our lives are supposed to go and we have a better idea than God. And what James would say is, you don't you don't know what your life will be you don't know what god will do with the things that he's walking you through today with the things that he's asking you to hold on to that you'd rather let go of the things he's asking you to let go of that you'd rather hold on to you have no idea you you don't know how you don't even know what you don't know and if we would just accept that and walk in that we would find a freedom that would blow our minds So the the first reason the life control illusion is an illusion is, number one, James says, because we've forgotten, we're we're more ignorant than we realize. The second reason that the life control illusion is so foolish is verse 15. It says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. And what James is saying here is, secondly, we are more dependent than we realize, Now, I I want to point out something because I I realize with this teaching, there's a high chance um, that what I'm saying might get misunderstood, and I want to be really clear here. You notice in verse 15, James is saying, you just take the verse at face value, James says it's fine to say we will live and do this or that, meaning I want to be as explicit as possible here. James doesn't say in verse 13, you know, come now all you people who have a plan for your life. He doesn't go on in verse 15 to say Christians don't live that way. Christians don't plan anything. That's forbidden for people who, who give their life to Jesus. He does, it would be very easy for him to say that, but he doesn't. In verse 15, he's, he's explaining it's perfectly fine to say we will live and we will do this or do that. In other words, it's absolutely fine and it's actually wise to have a plan for your life. It's wise to look at the resources and the gifting that God has given you and to come up with a strategy to accomplish some vision for your life in light of that. That's not the issue James is addressing here. The issue is is when we live that way and we forget this tiny little phrase on the front end, if the Lord wills. What James is saying is the second reason the life control illusion is so devastatingly foolish is because when we live that way, we forget that we are not in control. And that everything, think about this statement. According to this, James says, if the Lord wills, you'll live and you'll do this or that. You know what that means? That means everything that happens in your life and everything that happens in history in general only happens because the Lord wills it. That's what that means. Now, you think through that for any length of time, and this immediately brings us to a question that people have been wrestling with as long as we've been around, and and here it is. Are we free, or is there a fixed plan that we cannot escape? (laughs) Got, Got some philosophers in the congregation today. People have joked about I don't know if they were actually joking, but people have said with a smile on, on their face that they hate what I'm about to do to you, but the answer to that question is, I just heard it a few times, the answer is yes. When you, if you ask the entire Bible, are we free and do our choices matter, or is there a fixed plan that we cannot escape, the Bible simply says yes. And, and the only way to live a wise life and not make a mess of your life is to hold those seemingly paradoxical truths together. And we could look at so many different places in the Bible that show how those things coincide without compromising each other. But uh, to me, one of the the clearest places is actually found in a sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2.23, Peter says, Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, there's God's will. He says, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. There's man's responsibility you notice what Peter doesn't say there. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter that you all handed Jesus over to be crucified because that was God's plan. So, you're not culpable, you're not responsible, and really, if you didn't do it, he would have made somebody else do it, so don't even sweat it. He doesn't say that. On the other hand, he doesn't say, it is a good thing you guys crucified Jesus because God wouldn't have been able to save anybody if you didn't. He doesn't speak either way. What, what Peter is saying here, what, what, what James is getting at, and what the whole Bible leaves us with is this idea is that everything that happens in your life and everything that happens in this life only ever happens exactly according to the will of God. And yet, within the context and the confines of that will, you and I are still responsible for the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis. And it's only in holding those two seemingly incompatible truths together that we'll live a wise life. Because apart from this, will adopt a mindset that says, you know what, everything's determined, nothing I do matters, and then you'll be a fool because you'll be, in, you'll be, you'll be indifferent and passive when you should be active, or else you, you, you'll, you'll lean towards this idea that, no, nothing's fixed, and what I do is the only thing that matters, and then you'll basically... Give yourself a heart attack with this low-grade anxiety that you are one mistake away from ruining what would otherwise been God's plan for your life, which is simply not true. So secondly, James says the life control illusion is an illusion because not only are we more ignorant than we realize, but we're more dependent than we realize. Thirdly, and lastly, however, he tells us in the second half of verse 14 what I consider to be far and away the most sobering part of this passage. He says, you are... Like smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is, uh, there's, there's really no way to, to put a humorous bow on this one. What James is saying here is that the, the third, and I would say the ultimate reason that the life control illusion is such an illusion and it would be so foolhardy to think otherwise, is because we are, as human beings living on the wrong side of eternity, so much more f- frail than we realize. Not just ignorant, not just dependent, but frail. Uh, w- what James is saying here is, is, is brutal. I don't know. I've never really thought about it this way, um, but here's what, he, here's what he's saying. To, James, James would say, to everybody who thinks they're wise, to everybody who thinks they're in control, to everybody who thinks that you, you can just carve out a plan for your life and basically determine how your life is going to go, James says, you are smoke. Other versions translate this word mist or vapor or even breath. And you think about the image that, that James is bringing to mind here. It's a really seasonally appropriate image because I literally did this this morning, and I'm sure you probably did as well. It brings to mind that moment when you, when you step outside on a cold morning and you can see your breath. Everybody's done that before. And when you do that, it, it, it's, it's really unsettling to me to think about this. When you do that, you know, that, that breath, that mist, that vapor, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's there for probably less than a second, but that, that vapor has so little reality to it, so little substance to it, that as quickly as it's gone, it's as though it was never there to begin with. It leaves no mark. It's not remembered. It's, it's as though it never existed. James is saying, you don't know yourself until you see yourself in that breath, He says, you are completely out of touch with reality until you realize your entire life is like that breath. And actually, zoom out a little bit here, so is the life of mankind in general in the grand scheme of eternity. That's why probably no one listening to me right now can name their great-grandparents or their great-great-grandparents. It's just the nature of human life. There's so many. There's so many images in Scripture. I, the, the first time that this really moved me and messed with me, I went to Mexico earlier this year, and and uh, we, we we um we checked out Chichen Itza, one of the ancient wonders of the world. A tour guide, man, this for whatever reason, this really bothered me. A tour guide had this big map of the ancient um, that area of the world, so you know, Central and South America, and and uh, he was talking about different kingdoms that ruled back then, and, and there was this one really prominent, you know, royal city that it, uh, it exercised its influence all over that part of the world. And, and I just, whatever reason, I was curious. I said, well, how long were they around? And he said, 600 years. 600 years this empire reigned. And I thought, that's, that's twice as long as America's been, that's more than twice as long as America's been around, and no one remembers anyone who lived or died then. Because we're just smoke, we're this mist, we're this mist. We're this vapor. James is saying that's, you haven't even begun to develop wisdom until you've really built your life on that. Now, if I can do something, this is going to sound really strange for a pastor to hear. This is a real encouraging sermon, by the way, isn't it? If I can just say something that sounds really strange for a moment here, let's take God out of it for just a second. Let, let's, consider, let's just consider what James has said about our reality without God. He said that we are so much more ignorant than we realize. We're so much more dependent than we realize, we're so much more frail than we realize, that has some profoundly unsettling implications if there is no God. And I don't know anybody that's, that's captured those implications better than, than um, a famous 20th century secular philosopher. His name, his name is Bertrand Russell. So obviously he didn't believe in God. He's a secular philosopher. I shared this quote with you back in the Ephesians series in the summer. But what he does, in, in, in the words I'm about to read you, He just perfectly captures the nature of our reality if there is no God. Here's what he says. That man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, growth, hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, he says all that to say this, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now that quote does not exactly make me want to go carpe the diem. But to Bertrand Russell's credit, he is 100% right if there is no God, if there is no supernatural reality, if there is no life beyond this life. What what he says there is is exactly right. Without God, the sun's going to eventually burn out, which means the solar system's eventually going to die out, which means the relatively short amount of time that human beings lived on this planet will one day be forgotten. That means we've come from meaninglessness, We're headed towards meaninglessness, and and all Bertrand Russell's saying here is you're a coward if you can't admit, and what that means for you and my life ultimately is that our lives at bottom are profoundly meaningless. Now, the problem with that explanation of reality, I'm going to say something that might sound strange, is that Bertrand Russell himself knows that that's not accurate. Neil deGrasse Tyson knows that's not accurate. Richard Dawkins, the greatest atheistic minds of our day knows, and, and, and as well as everybody who listens to this, knows that that explanation of reality is unsatisfactory and it's untrue. And I can prove it. I can prove it with what God says in His Word in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This is one of most profound statements about people in the Bible, and it explains so much about humanity to me. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we are told, listen to this, that God has set eternity in the human heart. That means religious or secular, you know, traditional or modern, you know, wh- wh- however you, you, you identify or whatever you would call yourself or camp you would ascribe to, whatever you believe about God and the Bible and all of that, what, what Scripture is saying is that whether, whether you like it or not, eternity has been placed in your heart by God. And what that means at least is that deep within every human heart, there is this, there's this nagging sense and this deep longing for a life beyond the condition that James describes here. And really, I think the whole point of this passage is to just wake us up and put us on to get that desire out in front of us. Now, Here's what I mean. In this passage, as I just tried to walk you through, James, you know, almost bludgeons us with this idea that we are so, we are so ignorant, we have so little knowledge even of our own lives end to end, we are so dependent, so subject to forces beyond our control, you know, our, our hopes and our aspirations are so often thwarted and unrealized in this life and we are so, we're so frail, we appear like this mist and when we're gone it's as though we were never here to begin with. And the question that I had when I, was, when I was reading all that and thinking through that and thinking, what on earth am I going to tell the church that sends them out of here with any kind of hope? The question that I'm asking, that I always ask when I read this book, is why tell us all that? And I'll tell you what the answer is not. James is not telling us all of this to beat us down. He's telling us this to wake us up. What, what James is doing here, what James is doing is he's trying to get us in touch with the deep desire that every human heart has to escape the reality that James describes here. The the deep desire every human heart has to step out of our ignorance and our dependence and our frailty and our mortality for a life that a part of us senses we know we were made for, that was taken from us even before we lived. C.S. Lewis put this in, in, in a way that only he could in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, the sense that in this universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, that longing, he says, is a part of our inconsolable secret. It's a part of what makes a human a human. He says, And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory that God extends to us becomes highly relevant to our deep desire because glory means good report with God. It means acceptance by God. It means response and acknowledgement and welcome into the heart of things. And he, and he ends his quote by saying, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Now I read what James is saying here. and Please follow me because we're almost done. I read what James is saying here and what's clear is this whole passage is simply to, to put us in touch with how deep and poignant that desire is in our hearts. And of course, that's a desire James knew better than anybody, that can only find its fulfillment in Jesus, right? The the, the promise of the gospel is that if you and I will simply do what James calls us to do here, which is to let go of the white-knuckle grip that we all have on our lives, acknowledging our ignorance and our dependence and our frailty, if we're willing to do that and, and trust in Jesus Christ and what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ, then what will happen The promise of the gospel is that our longing for a life beyond this life, a life that a part of us senses we were made for, this thing that the Bible defines as eternal life, that longing will be finally and forever fulfilled. And all we have to do is trust God. The problem with that, as simple as it sounds, is the whole story of this book is telling us we can't do that. There's this deep lie that is passed into every single human heart. Again, you don't know yourself if you don't identify this in yourself. There's this deep lie since Genesis chapter 3 that's passed into every human heart that God can't be trusted, that he's holding out on us, that happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction exists outside of rather than inside of his will. That's the lie that led the couple first to sin in the garden. It's a lie that's led every single one of us to sin ever since then. So if I left you... Today, simply by saying, well, here's the answer, just trust God, everyone, it would be a complete waste of everyone's time because what we all eventually discover is that that's not a button you push or a lever that you pull. If we could all just decide to trust God more than we used to, all of our lives would be unbelievably better than they are right now, but we can't. And so thankfully, what makes Christianity unique is God has not left us there. God has not left us with the command that we are incapable of walking out on our own. What God has done this is, this is the message of the gospel, is God has demonstrated his love for us in Jesus. So that instead of simply standing outside of our lives and calling us to trust him, he's demonstrated in Jesus that he can be trusted. And the art of letting go of our lives and handing it over to him is to go back to the cross and see one more time what he's done for us in Christ. And the work of Christ, although not explicit in this passage, is hinted at in a really subtle and powerful way. I'm going to say it for the second time now. I'm almost done, so please lean in. In verse 14, James tells us the only way that we can avoid making a mess of our lives is to subjugate our will to the will of God. It's about moving through life with a constant mindset that says, if the Lord wills, I'll live and I'll do this or that. But if he wills something else, you know, not my will but yours, God. I don't know how you can read that command without immediately thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's gospel account, just before Jesus' betrayal and his his crucifixion, Jesus had this moment with God in prayer where he was beginning to experience the horror of the cross. And he said that he was beginning to be crushed the gospel writer tells us that his sweat was beginning to become like drops of blood, which is a medical condition of someone under extreme duress. And Jesus prayed to God the Father, and he actually asked God that if there was any other way to accomplish what he had come here to do, to let this cup of God's wrath be passed from him, but at the end of the prayer, Jesus did, full knowing what was ahead of him, Jesus did what, what you and I have never been able to perfectly, authentically do. He concluded his prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And from that moment to the end of the gospel account, till Jesus breathes his last, what you're reading is the historical account of the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, giving up all of his power. What you're reading from that moment on is the author of life laid down his life and the one who's in control of everything gave up control for you and for me. Let me call the worship team up and I'm gonna close with this. For the third now, third time now, I'm going to close with this. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that in Jesus, you can know that everything that happens in your life is in control of the one who loved you enough to lose control for you. That's the gospel. And you... Nothing less than that will help us navigate the ups and downs of life and the end of life itself. It is not, maybe you know this already, but it is not enough for you and I to simply beat on our will when life is is tough and say God's in control, God's in control, God's in control. That's unsatisfactory and that can't change the human heart. It can't. What we need to know is not just that God is in control. We need to know that God is in control and he can be trusted because he loves us. And it's on the cross of Jesus Christ that that love is put most clearly On display. Now let me ask you, does the cross give you the reason? Does that tell you the reason that you're going through what you're going through right now? The answer is no. Does the cross tell you why you experienced what you experienced in in your childhood home? No, it doesn't. Does it tell you why you experienced the abuse and the abandonment that still affects you so profoundly today? Does it tell you why that was a part of your path? No, it doesn't. Does it tell you why things are the way they are in your marriage or in your family or why you've experienced the loss and the pain and the heartache and the unanswered questions and the sleepless nights and all of that? Does it tell you why, what the reason for those things is? No, the cross does not, but the cross of Jesus Christ gives you something that if you ask me is even better. It tells you what the reason can not be. It cannot be that God does not love you because he went through way too much for you. He entered into this mess, the mess that we've made of our lives. He took it on himself. He suffered. He bled. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was stripped naked. He was forsaken and destroyed. And the only way that you and I are going to have the strength to let go of our lives and find any measure of peace is by seeing what he went through for us. And so if you and I want, and everybody wants this, if you and I want a boast that will enable us to face anything in life, despite how ignorant and dependent and frail we are, what James would say is you need to make the love of Jesus Christ your boast. Because when you do, and as you do, you will grow in the ability to walk the path that God has laid out for you, knowing that even though you're not in control, the one who is can be trusted. That's how you let go. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, I shudder to think what you are leading all the people on the other side of me right now through. God, I shudder to think what you might lead me through before you're done with me. It is so hard so hard for us, for us weak, frail, ignorant, dependent creatures to just let go and to trust you. Our lives would be so much better if we did. We can't, God. We can't just decide to do that, and so what I'm asking is that you would make it real to us one more time what you did for us in Jesus, that we would see the demonstration of your love on that cross and find there the strength to simply let go, to trust you, to put one foot in front of the other, to walk the path that's been laid out for us, knowing that we don't know and we don't have to, because you know and you love us. And you've promised that in Christ, somehow, you're going to cause everything, not just the good things, but especially the bad things, to work together for our good. How you're going to do that is a mystery we will not see the fulfillment of in this life, but we will live to see it as sure as there was an empty tomb on the other side of that blood-stained cross, you know how to turn crucifixion into resurrection, which you make it real to us today so that we can walk the path that you've laid out for each and every one of us with confidence and poise and joy. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things, and all of God's people say,